Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Those are verses 6 to 9 of Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, January the 18th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We continue our look at the Messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Today we're in chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. Uh, also in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, and then in Mark's Gospel, the third chapter, the 19th through the 35th verses. So we're continuing, the the theme of the Epiphany season is pretty simple, right? It's the revelation of Jesus. It's revelation in who he is. Um, And the revelation is based, again, not in the testimony of who demons say that he is, but based in the testimony of what he does, the the miracles or the signs, as John calls them, uh, as opposed to miracles, because a sign, the difference between the two is that a sign points to something. A miracle just is, right? So a sign points to something else. And, And I really like that about John. He focuses on just a few signs. His was the last gospel that was probably written. And so he focuses on just these few and then tells us the reason that I wrote this thing was so that you would believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. And what he says is, I believe these are the things that point to that reality and that truth, that if you follow the clues and the breadcrumbs, then you'll come to this conclusion based on his teaching and on what he did in his life on earth. And so John makes it clear that these are signs. They're not just miracles. They're signs. He's not simply a wonder worker. No. No, 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 no. You've underestimated him if that's who you believe that he is. And so he, it points to a larger reality that he is one and the same with the God of the universe. So in the Isaiah passage today, remember what he's been doing the last two or three times uh, the passages that we've read has, has been to point to God as unique being in the universe, that there's no God like him. There's no other God at all. And God's saying these things and said, you know, basically he challenges anybody who would make a claim to having a God like him um, or being a God like him and says, all right, come on, show it, prove it. So here we get a look at the, the foolishness of idol worship. All who fashion idols are nothing. So not just the idol itself, but the people who fashion those idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. And what that means is not you can't make money by making idols because you can make good money making idols. And in fact, at Ephesus, that was one of the biggest issues that Paul had to deal with in Ephesus when he was there was that people were upset because they were uh, deeply embedded in the making of idols, Remember, they get upset. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and that Paul has has cast doubt about their god. This Artemis, Diana, the huntress. That so they they the the coppersmith Alexander the coppersmith gets upset and then stirs up the people who make idols because what he sees is is that economically this is going to kill us 
if people stopped coming here and believing in these things. It was a place where a lot of people made pilgrimages. And so you'd come make a pilgrimage to this place. You would worship that idol. You would hopefully, if from, from their perspective, you'd get a word from one of the Sibyls who, who went into the caves and then sort of breathed in the, the stuff that was in the cave and then came out in this sort of trance-like state and gave a word supposedly from the goddess. And so when Paul comes in and, and claims the coming of the kingdom, then what he's saying is you've got to dethrone your gods. And if you do that, then it's going to cost them economically. So it says here, God says the things they delight in do not profit. He's not talking about economics and finances there. He's saying they're of no value. Literally, they, they provide no value in your life except for this economic value, maybe. The witnesses neither see nor know that they may be with shame. So in other words, they, they don't have any earthly idea. And why would they do this? And it makes no sense. And you can think back to, obviously, when Aaron makes the golden calf, it's like, why would you do that? Why would you say, behold your gods? And then when the northern kingdom splits off from the southern kingdom, the king does the same thing. He makes these calves and says exactly the same thing that Aaron said and said, so now you don't have to go to Jerusalem and worship. You can worship here. Oh, so that's a substitute for God. And, and it seems like nobody had the discernment to go, whoa, 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 whoa. We did this once before, and it did not go well. It was the biggest mistake we ever made. And so they, they followed after this thing. So he says, who fashions a god or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They'll be terrified. They shall all be put to shame together. And then he goes on to explain the process, right? The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. In other words, you, you know, it just, it, this is nothing, it's made by human hands. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it off with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. The shapes He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So you've got a man. That, that man is created in the image of God. And so God, God said, well, you are. That's the thing. The reason we're not supposed to have any idols or images is because we're the image of God. And we're not supposed to worship one another. We're supposed to worship him in us. And so he, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. It's, it's a piece of wood. And you know that it's a piece of wood because you use it for that purpose, for the purposes wood could be used. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied, and he warms himself and says, Aha, I've warm, I've seen, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you're my god. And, and the, the point is, how stupid is this? This, this is an absolutely ridiculous idea. You took a piece of wood, and we all know that it was nothing more than a piece of wood because most of it you used like wood. And then now you've done something with it, and you made something, and that's your God? Something you made? 
They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they can't see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say half of it. I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? I mean, it's just simple logic, he says, but nobody even seems to think that way. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And again, I've said this before, that, that we, are, we are idle factories. We can make an idol of anything. It can be a house. It can be a job. It can be a person. It could be our kids. It could be the success that our kids might have. It could be anything, literally, that consumes our attention and, and takes us away from worshiping him. It could be a politician. It could you name it. We can turn these things into idols, and we can worship them in the sense that we expect them to deliver us. In the gospel, remember Jesus had just called the disciples to himself, and so he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. There were so many people there, and they wouldn't leave him alone, so they couldn't even take the time to eat. And remember that Jesus has done this before. There have been times when particularly with a Samaritan woman, he had sent the disciples away to get food, and when they came back, he had been with this Samaritan woman, and and he said, I'm not hungry, actually. And he said, you don't understand. What I have to eat is the work of my father. And they were so confused. Did somebody give him food? What's going on here? But no, Jesus would, he would neglect his bodily needs because there was something more important going on. This was opportunities to declare in, in the kingdom of God. And so he was always willing to give his time to others. Now, even if he was trying to get away to a desolate place, if the people followed him, he would give everything that he had to those people. And so here, his family heard it, and they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. He's neglecting his own bodily needs and allowing this craziness to happen of all these people coming to him. And so what we can easily see and discern here is they didn't believe. Even Mary is with them, and he doesn't, and she's not believing here, and she wants to, to kind of protect him and, and guard him. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Does that make any sense? I mean, that's the argument that is the same as in the Isaiah passage. This doesn't make any sense, logically. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder the house. So the straw man can't bind himself. Somebody else has to do that. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus says, you're not blaspheming against me, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and he isn't here to defend himself. I can, I can take it. You know, this is a family thing. You can hear that in there that I can take it. You can say whatever you want about me, but don't you dare say something about one of my kids or my wife or people that I love. Right. I mean, that's the thing is, is that, that you know, I, I can look at it and just brush it off. If you say something about me, true or not. But if you say something about somebody that I that I really care about, 
I'm coming after you with hammer and tongs. You know, I'm not just going to brush that off and move on. No, I'm going to defend that person. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You can't say things against the third person of the Trinity when the third person of the Trinity is not able to, to speak and defend himself. No, that's not going to work. I'm not going to put up with that. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and a brother and a sister. So, and, and that's the way we should feel. The, the family relationships that we have with our, our sort of biological family are important. They're very important. It's a primary responsibility to honor our father and mother and then to, to care about our family. That's a primary gift that God's given us that we need to take, not for granted, we need to take it with, with, as a blessing that he's given us those people. Now, they can prove themselves to be, well, not really a blessing. So we've, we've got to bear that in mind. But the intention God has is making us one people in that same kind of way that we're we're called to be brothers and sisters with one another. And I've certainly had men and women that I would have considered mothers and fathers in the faith, and mothers and fathers in a sense of now that I'm not at home, not where I grew up, for instance, and I don't see my mother very often, and my father died in 1999. And God was so gracious to me at that time. I was just in seminary and trying to move forward, and God gave me a couple of men and some women uh, who were older even than my parents, and they became mothers and fathers to me. And, and it was a great blessing to me, and they were no less important in my life. <clears throat> in the Ephesians passage, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And again, I've said this a lot lately. Paul speaks in Romans 12 that we're not to be conformed to the world, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're to be new creatures. We are to be different. We're, we're not to be the same. We're not to be captive to the same things people in the world are captive to. We're not to obsess over those things because we have our sights set higher than that. Our hopes are higher hopes. We know that ultimately no one can deliver us except for the one who has ascended, who has gone on high, and who has who has uh, transformed the world through the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so we're not to be focused and fixated on the same things the world is. And the only way we can do that is for our minds to be renewed, to see things as they are in truth, beginning with who is our hope. So he says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, they, they won't turn to him. There's a futility in there that, that's ridiculous slash ludicrous if you actually examine it very much. It makes no sense to worship the things that they worship. It makes no sense to fixate and focus on the things they fixate and focus on because all this is passing away. This is, this is all just temporal stuff. <clears throat> he says that um, they are alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
because they've set their sights on those things. They've forgotten those things that are eternal in value. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, and that's an important point that Paul gets at often. And that is, is that we, we've got to raise ourselves above the level of earthly desire before we're going to be able to actually know more about him, that, that sometimes our walk is the way we learn more. Because what happens is, is that we get, we're still focused on those things. They consume too much of our thoughts. And, and unless we put aside all those things, there's knowledge and information that's not even available to us so long as we're satisfied with the way things are and we're walking in sensual ways. And I don't mean that necessarily as far as sex is concerned, but what is it that tempts us and consumes us? Is it things of earth or is it things of God? And so the problem becomes is just that we learn by committing ourselves to the knowledge we already have. I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be a, a new person as opposed to the old person. And, and we've got to be able to move beyond that. And it, again, I've said it a million times. It comes to where is your heart and where is your mind? How do you spend your time? What, are the, what is the information and the knowledge that you pursue? And, the, and if you can say... I'm spending, you know, 12 hours a day looking at conspiracy theories, for instance, or whatever it is, or, or I'm looking at houses, or I'm looking at this, or I'm looking at that, then it tells something to God about what's truly important to you. So he's to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what he's saying here is, is this new self that's created after the likeness of God, you were created in the image of God, but what he's saying is you've got to put on the new self because the old self has lost that image-bearing capacity because you were looking at the wrong things. Your priorities have failed to become and be God's priorities. And so the way that you move into this new self and, 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 and about being the image and likeness of God is when you make the move from the old self to the new self in true righteousness and holiness. Those are things that are important to God. You're trying to become like him because he's righteous and he's holy. And he's calling us to be holy like he is. And he said that. We're to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests serving our God. Is that your pursuit in life? Is that where you've set your heart, is to be like him, to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests? Are you pursuing that holiness and that righteousness and in your life? Because if you're not, then the old person is still in control. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. It's possible to do that, right? Jesus gets angry at the temple with the money changers, but he didn't sin because he was zealous for the house of God. And he did no harm to these people. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with that anger. Don't let it consume you. Don't let it spill over day after day. Don't obsess about these things. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone that's in need. So move away from taking from other people and move into being able to share with other people. 
that that's the goal. Go get a job, do something productive so that you can then share with others. And when you do that, you make it less likely that other people will steal because what it shows you is, is that you don't care. You just want that thing so badly you're willing to do anything to get it. But, but if you're helping and providing for other people, then they have less reason to do the same thing. <clears throat> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as is the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Man, oh man, if, if that characterized our communication with one another and our love for one another in the church and in, in the body of Christ, and I'm, so I'm extending that beyond any given expression of the body of Christ, I'm extending it across denominational lines to, to all Christians everywhere. If that's the way we loved one another, then the church would be changed. The perception of the world towards Christians would be changed too. But the problem is they see us and they say, well, you're not really different. I'm not seeing the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in you. I'm seeing the same problems in the church that I see in the world. And so why do I want to be part of that if I don't get something new and different?